This is the big ponder. Okay. Florence, do you remember your first transatlantic flight? Um, that must have been in 2000s, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, a continental flight to either Tampa, Florida or Fort Lauderdale. Okay. I'm not sure. On our way to Frankfurt, we actually hit an air pocket. An air pocket? Yes. Uh, dropped some couple of hundred meters down in free fall, you know, red wine and tomato juice spilling everywhere. And uh, when the pilot finally regained control over the aircraft, yeah. everyone sighted, you know, in relief. I mean, for me, it sounds like a nightmare. Kind of. But, you know, I was too small to realize the stakes. For me, flying was still one big adventure. This feeling you get in your stomach the second the airplane takes off and accelerates, like in a roller coaster, there's still nothing that could beat that. Mm -hmm. What about you, Leon? When did you first fly overseas? Uh, well, my first transatlantic crossing was 10 years ago from Brussels to Canada. Mm-hmm thing was that the flight was so early in the morning that we have to go to Brussels the day before. Then we slept on the bench at the airport. <laughs> and it's like a snack bar with neon lights flashing the whole night. Uh, and at 5 a.m. in the morning, exactly, there was a cleaning machine starting right next to us. But the flight itself was really, really nice. A lot of space. It was an older plane. Very nice crew. Nice food and so on. And, and it felt really like a new way to travel to also a new world. Exciting. Fun story, on our way to the exit, we were stopped at the baggage claim by the police because the search dog had sniffed something. What? Yeah. Why? Yeah, you don't believe it. It was because of an apple ah. deep inside my bag. And the clever dog smelled the apple and it's forbidden to import them. And then our whole luggage was double checked. Oh, wow. An apple. Passengers, welcome aboard this big ponder flight from Berlin City to Washington, D.C. with stops in Berlin, Tempelhofer and Frankfurt am Main. My name is Leon Ginzel and sitting next to me is my co-host Florence Gilly. In the next 28 minutes or so, we will take a deep dive into the history of aviation and highlight the importance of air travel between Germany and the U.S. We will meet an incredible young German woman which looped around the Statue of Liberty and we will learn how the work of pilots and stewardess have changed during the last couple of years. And we will discuss how the climate crisis will change the way we travel with planes. So please fasten your seatbelt and leave your earbuds in at all time. And now sit back and enjoy the flight. The 1930s marked the beginning of commercial air traffic across the big pond. Apart from propeller-driven aircrafts, there was a different kind of flying objects occupying the airspace. Humongous airships, big hydrogen-filled vehicles which looked like gigantic cigars. The so-called Zeppelin took up to three days to fly from Frankfurt to New York. I mean, still quite short if you consider that going overseas by ship took several weeks. And it was a real technical sensation at the time. Probably the most famous of all airships was the Hindenburg, which completed several round trips between Germany and the US in the 1930s. Until this one day in the spring of 1937, May 6th, 
a rainy day. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. That's the voice of Herbert Morrison, a 31-year-old radio producer from Pennsylvania who worked for WLS in Chicago at the time. Morrison became a pioneer of live broadcasting. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, hi. Get out of the way, please. It's running and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, it's, it's like running. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen, the smoke and the flames now, and the flames rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass, all the humanity and all the passengers feeding around it. I told you, I can't The Hindenburg was on its way from Frankfurt to New York. It already had a massive delay due to strong headwinds over the Atlantic. At the airport in Lake Hurst, the weather conditions were also poor that day. We're talking thunderstorms and heavy rainfall. So the captain decided to change the course and flew over to Jersey Shore. People in Manhattan rushed out into the streets to watch this spectacular appearance up in the sky. On the second approach to land in Lakehurst, the Hindenburg tried to tie the air vessel with ropes to a high mooring mast. That's when things started to go wrong. All the humanity and all the fans just feeding around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people. There's around there. 35 people died in the explosion. It was the end of an era. The Hindenburg disaster was one of many catastrophes that changed the route that aviation would take forever. I mean, the history of air travel is full of that. Firsts and lasts, maiden flights records, strategies. What many of us don't know, though, is that from day one, there have been female pilots, but they aren't as well known as their male counterparts. I remember that one time in Chicago when I saw a young female pilot. Seeing that women pilots do exist just felt so good. So, Florence, you talked to Sabine Kalf, literary scholar from Berlin, about the role women played in aviation. Today it's so hard to imagine the flight enthusiasm in the beginning of the 20th century. Here and abroad, all female pilots had to overcome barriers. Women weren't allowed to fly commercially until certain years. And that, according to Sabine Kalf, is mostly because men were scared of female competition. Dahinter steht wirklich die Verteidigung der Pfründe, kann man nicht anders sagen, als dass irgendwie man sieht, da ist Geld zu verdienen und das wird verwehrt. Thea Rasche, a strong, cheerful person from North Rhine-Westphalia, became the country's first woman to obtain a flying license after the First World War. And she could have become the first woman to cross the Atlantic Ocean by plane if the American Amelia Earhart wasn't faster. Against the will of her father, Rasche learned to fly and got an offer to take a shot at crossing the Atlantic. And so one day, she took her Flamingo, that's what her propelled aircraft was called, brought it to Southampton, England, and shipped it to the U.S. Wait... She took a ship? <laughs> yeah, that was also my reaction when Zabinikov told me. Apparently, even bigger aircrafts needed tailwind. 
The same reason why today flying from the US to Germany takes less time than the other way around. Exactly. So Rasha took the ship and arrived in New York where she received a warm welcome and was ensnared by journalists and showered with flowers. And US media, who just called her the Flying Fräulein, loved Thea Rasche. Thea Rasche goes silent after Bruch landing in the Hudson River. Aircraft destroyed. Thousands watch the Flying Fräulein looping around the Statue of Liberty. German pilot comes second in all-female flight race powder puff derby. The headline German Thea Rasche first woman to cross the Atlantic Ocean by plane, however, was never printed. Bad weather and technical issues prevented her from setting a world record. I wonder what flying meant to those women. Was it some sort of vehicle of emancipation? Mm -hmm. Well, Milita Schiller, for example, another German pilot, summed up her position in a catchphrase. We are pilots, not suffragettes. Do we believe that? Well, say, there's justified cause to doubt that. Also, ich glaube Ihnen das nie so ganz, dass Sie gar keine emanzipatorische Absicht haben. Aber ich glaube, die Lage ist schon kompliziert genug. Thea Rasche, for example, relied on her father's money, who would cut her short after her failed attempt to cross the Atlantic. Sounds like tough business being a woman in the aviation those days. Yes, very tough. However, they knew how to help each other. Rasche really cooperated with her American colleagues. That sense of camaraderie is typical for U.S. aviation. In Germany, on the contrary, women were struggling more by themselves. Inspired by her trip to the U.S., Thea Rasche saw flying not only as a means to cross boundaries and push limits, but also to overcome national trenches that would soon get deeper and deeper. What a shame that only a couple of years later German and American pilots would fight each other to the bones during World War II. True. It's 1948. Since the end of June, the Soviets block every transport route to the western part of the city. Two million people are isolated. It's a power game in the beginning of the Cold War, and the Allies are starting an unprecedented operation, supplying West Berlin from the air. For 15 months, every three minutes, the Allies send an airplane to Berlin to supply the German capital with essential goods of all sorts. Apart from coal, those planes brought all sorts of dried food. That's why they were called raisin bombers. Florence, your grandparents grew up in Berlin, and they actually still have kept some of those uh, care packages at their house. Yes. When Grandpa and I went down to the basement, this is what we found. Ah, here is. Uh, what is it here? Elbow Macaroni. Siehste, Nudeln. Elbow Macaroni, gestiftet von den Bürgern der Vereinigten Staaten, unverkäuflich und nicht austauschbar. 
Mal sehen, ob wir noch was finden. Guck mal hier. Non-Feed Dry Milk. Trockenmilch. Trockenmilch? Ja. Donated by the people of the United States of America. Ja, ja. Not to be sold or exchanged. Siehste? Okay, wait. Four and a half pounds. Oktober, Dezember 1960. 1960. Ganz schön alt. So lange ist es äh, haltbar. haltbar. Ach, Expire so. in 1960. I wonder if that's still edible. Honestly, I wouldn't dare to try. Anything else your grandfather remembers? Well, first, he didn't make a secret of the taste. Not so great. Geschmeckt hattet alles nicht so dolle, aber du hattest ja Hunger. Du hattest ja Hunger, es war ja gar kein... And second, he rhapsodized about one particular item, chocolate. Und natürlich, wir Kinder, wir haben natürlich geguckt, ob Schokolade dabei ist. Da war Hershey, war öfters mal Hershey-Schokolade, das war natürlich nur mal ganz Besonderes. Those Hershey bars have kind of become the symbol of the airlift. And all that... Thanks to the very American pilot who one day had the ingenious idea of tying a chocolate bar to a little napkin and let those sweet paratroopers rain from the sky. His name is Gail Halverson, Mormon, soldier, benefactor, and the key figure in the common history of Germany and the US. They're a long way from enemies to friends during the post-war period. Gail Halverson, who everyone just called Uncle Wiggly Wings because he would wiggle with the wings of his airplane when he came flying over Berlin's rooftops with his Douglas C-54 Skymaster. On his 100th birthday, Halverson, who survived a COVID infection, by the way, sent a video message to all Berliners. Berlin is my zweite Heimat. The history of the people and the geography of Germany and Berlin are a part of me. It is when I saw 30 children at the fence at Tempelhof Airport in 1948. They did not beg for candy. All they said was, we want our freedom. We'll live on thin rations, but if we lose our freedom, we'll never get it back. Please keep flying to bring us flour and keep us free. These were the words of the young people of Berlin. USA and Berlin werden immer irgendwo zueinander gehören durch die gemeinsame Geschichte. Und deswegen finde ich schon schade, dass diese Strecke nicht mehr gibt. Momentan. Vielleicht kommt sie ja wieder. Irgendwann. This is Christian Suchomsky. He's a pilot. For four years he worked for Air Berlin. Until its bankruptcy in 2017, the airline company connected Germany's capital with the US nonstop. So, uh, Leon, you talked to Christian. As a radio person, I'm always interested in soundscapes. Is there a particular sound associated with sitting in a cockpit? Mm -hmm. Actually, nothing but wind and white noise. Um ehrlich zu sein, ist es der Flugwind. <laughs> ja, das Rauschen ist das, was du damit verbindest. Das Rauschen an sich. What did Christian tell you about his work as a pilot? How was it for him to fly to the U.S.? Impressive is what he said, but listen yourself. Ich find's immer noch beeindruckend, mit einem über 200 Tonnen schweren Flieger über den Atlantik zu fliegen und auf einem anderen Kollegen. I'm still impressed to cross the Atlantic with a 200 tons heavy airplane and arrive at another continent, even as a pilot. Das finde ich auch selbst als Pilot noch sehr beeindruckend. For three hours, there is nothing but water around you. Kind of scary, if you ask me. But honestly, hand of hats, do pilots actually do more than just pushing buttons? Yes, I mean, of course, there's a lot of automation on a flight, sure, and time for reading and chatting, but 
someone has to set the computer program. And in New York, for example, they approach the big bird by a visual maneuver. The Kanazi approach. That's an approach that you make partly by sight. There are lights mounted on the houses in the city, on Long Island, on Jamaica, which run on a curve and help you orient yourself. And then you turn relatively closely to the runway above a highway, which has 1,000 lanes, as it likes to be in America. It's, it's beautiful. It's challenging. Okay, last question. Um, how do I put this? Did you ask him about the rumors? <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, I got it. You mean all the wide stories during layovers? Mm-hmm. Well, he told me, believe it or not, these stories are all just legends. Well, yeah. However, there used to be a close <laughs> connection between the cockpit and the cabin crew, Christian says, but that has changed a lot. So the cockpit's door got thicker. Yeah, Christian says there is not much exchange anymore. You see colleagues at the check-in and that's it for the whole day. Until you exit the plane and do it all over again. Wow, interesting. So es ist 6 Uhr in der Früh. All right, it's 6 a.m. on a sunny Thursday morning. We're at Berlin Main Station to catch the train to Frankfurt Airport. gleich den ICE in Richtung Frankfurt Airport. Four hours and a lot of coffee later. We arrived at Frankfurt and changed to the connecting train to the airport. And that's where we met Ran. Wo geht's heute hin? Heute fliege ich nach New York. JFK? Nee, EWR, New Jersey. Also einmal über den Fluss. Since five years, she works as a flight attendant and studies at the same time. Which means that when she has a layover, she also has to do something for university. Lan prefers to work business class because it's more personal, she says. More time to take care of only a few passengers she gets assigned to. Man hat halt so ähm, seine zugewiesenen Gäste und ist halt ein bisschen persönlicher an den Gästen dran, statt immer schnell durchzuhuschen und das Essen und Getränke zu verteilen. The 27-year-old also told us this inside joke about the dinner options on airplanes. Because apparently, the alternative between pasta or chicken never feeds all passengers. And when it comes to culinary desires, Lan frequently hears a special wish that a lot of American passengers have and that is not offered on German flights. Was alle Amerikaner komischerweise immer wollen und was wir leider nicht an Bord haben, ist uh, Cranberry Juice. We arrived at Germany's biggest air hub. Walking around the busy aisles and through the terminals of Frankfurt Airport, we began to wonder what type of place an airport really is. This nervous melange of bodies, baggage, numbers, sounds, and vehicles. An orchestra that is directed by flight schedules and technology. Highly paradoxical, allowing people to move freely between countries and continents and being like a prison's high-security wing at the same time. Places of arrival and departure, of new beginnings, farewells, and reunions. Shortly going to start reboarding for United Flight 988 to Washington. If you 
In order for one single flight to be on schedule, a lot of different actors have to work together and do their job right. First you need an aircraft. Well maintained in the best case. Then you need a tug that does the pushbacks. Meaning tugging the aircraft to and from the gates. Then we need the ground crew. And a cabin crew. And at least two pilots. Not to forget a crew bus that takes the crew to the gate. Then, of course, fuel. You don't want your aircraft to run short on kerosene during an 11-hour flight. And then, finally, the aircraft can take off. We both talked to the staff, responsible for all those things to happen at the right time, so there's no delays and people get their connecting flights. Me, I went to the Lufthansa hub at Frankfurt's International Airport, and I was welcomed by Dirk Dewald, who runs Lufthansa's Integrated Operations Control Center, which he compared to the heart vessel of the whole company. Also, da sind wir schon wirklich in der Schaltzentrale. Wenn hier der Strom ausfällt, dann wird's spannend. While Florence was talking to Dirk Dewald, I went to meet Torsten Letnin, who has been working for United Airlines for decades and helped to build up the base in Frankfurt. Woran man gerade bei so einer Reise in die USA, glaube ich, denkt, ist diese Vielzahl an Stunden, die ich im Flugzeug verbringe. Ich erinnere mich an die Zeiten. Remember the old days, where you're sitting and trying to reach a place where you have a good angle to two monitors where they're showing movies. I remember that. And uh, you could barely see anything. Exactly. And what else did he tell you about, like, cargo? Cargo? Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing they did not transport. So they transported everything, basically. Very interesting when, when there are, like, expensive cars, mm -hmm. like Ferraris, for example, that go to Nevada <laughs> because they do, like, their test driving over there. Funny, Lufthansa's Dirk Dewald mentioned high-value carriages as well. Sportboote, Surfbretter, Fahrräder, alles Mögliche, was man sich vorstellen kann, wird in der Welt hin und her geflogen. Die verschiedensten Sachen bis hin zu Wehrtransporten im hohen Wertbereich. Okay, so next time you fly with an ordinary aircraft, think about that you might be sitting on a treasure without even know it. Or a coffin. That also happens. Florence. Mm, I'm sorry. Um, so talking about revelations... I think the biggest one for me was that the sky is by no means this free tabula rasa like open space that I imagine it to be. It rather compares to a gridded land ruled by airlines in nation states. Copy that. Former Air Berlin pilot Christian compared the Atlantic route to a multi-lane highway where space is limited and aircrafts are flying crammed tightly together. And remember Thea Rasche, who was doing loopings above Manhattan? I asked Sabine Kalf about it, and here's what she said. Truly impossible since 9-11. Besides the Hindenburg disaster, one of the many deep cuts in the history of aviation that changed the business of flying completely. So, towards the end of our flight, we wanted to make space for the agents of aviation. Those who work the check-in desks. Or at the gates. Or take care of us passengers. Take Antje, for instance, who works for a major German airline. She's a purser, which means she oversees the cabin crew. 
I have always been a very, very big fan of the Pacific Northwest. This is my, this is my America, definitely. We ask her, what is unique about long-range flights to the U.S.? The passengers flying come from extremely different continents, countries, cultural backgrounds. As an example, people from India, um, it's very popular to travel via Germany to the U.S. And uh, so, yeah, it is this little melting pot in an aircraft. Being stuck on an airplane for six or eight or 12 hours straight presents its own challenges. But Antje knows how to handle even tough situations. Well, there are not a lot of doors you can open and hide behind on an aircraft, unfortunately. But there must always be time to take that step aside and drink a glass of water and take a deep breath. And nowadays, taking a step aside has become even harder, since some airlines got rid of their crew zones to make space for cargo. Where do you go if you don't have any room for your own? Even if there is no direct flight from Berlin to the US, there are a lot of tourists. At least in non-COVID times. Yeah. So we went to Berlin's newly built airport BER. Yes, the one that took 10 years and a gazillion dollars of tax money to be completed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finding someone going to the US wasn't easy, by the way. Do you fly to the US or...? No, no, no US, okay. Um, sorry, sir. Um, do you fly to the US? Sorry, can I ask you a question? We're a podcast for the Goethe Institute. Quick question. Finally, we found Jessica. Where are you from? San Francisco. San Francisco, where the sun is always shining. Great. What are you doing here in Berlin? Uh, just traveling through Europe. So I did France, Spain, Italy, Estonia, Finland, here, and then I'm going back to Italy. And then Greece. Jessica took the first class on her transatlantic crossing. What is the most significant difference? Having a bed. <laughs> of course, we also asked her about her experience traveling Germany. And, well, what do we say? Not her favorite. Uh, you want me to be 100% honest? It was my least favorite of the trip. <laughs> Why that? So, I'm not a rule person. If you do something that's not exactly right, it's like I got yelled at a couple times and... I don't know, it's felt a little less welcoming. We also found this family from Philadelphia. Bill. Emily. Kai. Oh, very right. nice to meet you. They came to visit their son, who is doing an exchange year in Berlin. Talking to them about the way air travel has changed since they first flew as kids, Emily, the mother, pins down the dilemma of flying in times of climate change and growing social injustice. I remember it was felt so special as a kid to fly. It was like, you got a really nice meet. It was like a special treat to get, take a long trip. But now it's really easy, like casual to do it, which is great that people have opportunities to travel around, but then we can't sustain the levels of the population travel. It's just a tricky situation we're in, I think. Well, there's a yeah. social class thing, right? I didn't get on an airplane until I was 22. I came from a working-class family and, you know, five kids. No way my parents were paying for... And it was a lot more expensive uh, 30 years ago. Will we still be able to fly? How can we keep our standard of flying without ruining the planet? I guess if it didn't exclude those who already don't have a lot of privilege, making tickets more expensive could be one way. Surprisingly enough, this is also what pilot Christian said. Wenn man die Luftfahrt wieder teurer machen würde, dann würden sich Leute auch dreimal überlegen, ob sie da wirklich hinfliegen müssen oder nicht. 
If flying is becoming more expensive, Christian says, the people would consider longer if they really have to go there by plane. And if yes, they get a better product or the money is taken for CO2 compensation. Antje, the flight attendant, believes that there will be drastic steps to be more efficient. There's going to be a lot of cost cutting for my workplace. I will probably have to do more work with a smaller crew in the future. Whatever path aviation will take in the near future, whether it be supersonic flights, which will reinforce the higher, faster, further mentality, or airplanes driven by solar power, or maybe even e-planes, we do hope Yes, we do. That it will still be possible to fly to and from the US to continue a bilateral history that began in the early 20th century and is still being written today. today. Listening to the Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible. <laughs>